Hey, indie filmmakers, I'm Nick Bodmer. I'm Griffin Hammond, and on this week's episode, I am not using a tripod to support my camera. Plus, your questions about step-up rings, when to use a shotgun versus hypercardioid mics, and can you show the iPhone operating system in your film? Hello, Nick. Hello, Griffin. Can you hear me? I think I can hear you. <laughs> Although that wasn't really the problem last week, was it? We're just going right. to have to hope we're actually recording audio this time. Well, this time we are recording, I think we're recording like probably triplicate audio. Uh, I, you are recording yourself, correct? One, two, three. I'm recording myself, yes. Do, are you, do you just record one feed or what do you do? So uh, I have, um, I record my, my studio mic here. I record the FaceTime call and I guess I have a backup of the audio straight from the camera as well. So I've got some, I got some options. You're saying in the camera, is it just the, like the camera's built-in mic? The, the built-in mic. Yeah, yeah, I don't even have. I don't well, have yeah, mic on. I suppose right I have that too. And then I'm recording myself into my microphone, into my Zoom, and then also as a backup because you've been you've been doing this for me the entire time we've been doing the podcast, recording my audio over the call as a backup. Just as a backup, yeah. And we've used it once. There was like one mm -hmm. one minute lapse when I was in Taiwan that we needed to to patch in that that phone audio but for some reason in 53 episodes this is our 53rd episode this is the first time that i'm recording your phone audio i'm returning the favor now and i appreciate that because sometimes <laughs> i make mistakes so here uh real quick just to give our audience the griffin hammond experience you get to hear now you can hear nick the way that i hear nick nick go ahead and talk and i'll play some of your phone audio that i'm recording perfect okay well uh, I'm excited to redo some of this episode that we did last week. Uh, All right, let's switch back I'm to your good about... microphone. Okay, yeah, that was bad. That was bad. Do I sound better now? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> this is we got recording. a little taste of that in our uh, in our fix for the episode where you called me while I was driving in my car. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was just low plain quality, old but recording fun. FaceTime. Yeah. Yeah, and I was rolling down the highway at the time, which you probably shouldn't record a podcast while you're rolling down the highway, but you no. Know. We'll, we won't life. do that in the future. Okay. I feel like instead of starting, I mean, we've already started this episode by delving into uh, a, like a problem, something that didn't go well. I'd like to bring this episode back up and talk about something that did go really well. Okay. What well, went so well? Other than us, uh, you oh. may remember that we got an email from Titus several months ago, back in September. He was concerned because he had made a review video of a mattress and the mattress yep, company I remember this. used the video without his permission, like in an ad. They stole it. Yeah. And he was conflicted because he likes the mattress and the company, but he just felt like they didn't ask permission. They didn't uh, try to give him any money for the clip. So he took our advice and he went back to them and just kind of explained politely. He didn't get angry, but he just said, hey, I... I appreciate you wanting to use my clip uh, in your video, but I am a working video professional and I, I would have preferred that you licensed it from me. And they actually went back and forth and ended up giving him $1,000. Good for him. Yeah. That's a good amount for, I mean, I think they actually only used like eight seconds of his clip maybe, but. I'm assuming they uh, eliminated any liability they had by doing so, which was probably a steal for them. Yeah. Well, and I think he kind of went about it the same way that I usually go about it. I usually don't say like, hey, I gotcha, 
let me punish you. I kind of make it sound like let's retroactively license this correctly. Like I don't want this to be copyright infringement. So let me help you license it. And I think that's kind of the way he went about it. Good for Titus. So Nick, I, uh, I showed you over the weekend my new setup for the podcast. <laughs> yes, you did. Very ingenious. Very ingenious. I assume you're going to share that with our audience here. Yeah. So I have some some video I can play right here, but I have now made an entire podcasting system that fits entirely within my closet. Just ready guess, at a moment's notice. Yeah. I, I mean, space is at a premium here in New York City. Uh, I I would prefer that my, my, my podcasting setup doesn't take up too much room. And it just kind of bothered me that I was setting up lights and tripods every time we would shoot the show. And then I would usually have a project to shoot the next day. So I'm immediately tearing down the lights on the tripod, packing it up, going and shooting something. Then I come home and then it's time to do the podcast again. And I have to unpack everything. And I just felt like I was going back and forth all the time. So I decided I should try to have like a dedicated podcast set up. So what are you doing for dedicated lights? Well, for lighting, so normally I shoot with the Westcott Flex lights, and mm -hmm. that was part of the problem, that I keep tearing them down and setting them up, and, and I would prefer them just to be ready to go. So I also happen to have this lighting system from Specular. Specular makes this modular lighting system that's much cheaper than the Westcott Flex lights. It's $650 mm -hmm. per LED panel. And what's nice about them is that they are modular they come in like four pieces and you can snap them together and you can make kind of any shape you want you can make a square you could make you could take three of them and make a triangle you could take eight of them i actually have eight of them and make like a giant octagon that makes a really nice ring light uh, but in this case i've just made like the simple just kind of folded them all together they're really just four lights in a row to make kind of a a block of light but that's you have eight panels and they're six hundred fifty dollars each. No, right? no, it's six hundred fifty four four panels. Oh, okay, okay. So you figure More it's reasonable. about half the price. I was of... like Griffin, that's not cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> it's about half the price of the Westcott Flex Light. The only downside of them is that they're not bi color LEDs. It's just one color. So you can't you can't adjust the color temperature. Right. So what I've ended up doing is I just bought a bunch of CTO gels, color temperature yep. orange gels. And I've just yep. wrapped the thing. It's a very blue light. Uh, I think it's like 6,000 Kelvin or something. And I just wanted it to be more like 4,000. So I have I threw a gel on there, and now it's a little bit warmer. Perfect. You know, it's interesting. I'm We're getting ready to buy a new house, and I've been kind of planning my new office, which will be my new podcasting location as well. Yeah. So I was thinking, how can I more permanently set up something uh, for right. the podcast? Because uh, I have to move lights around and... Yeah, things like that. So I might need some suggestions on, on what you might want me to do for lighting uh, in this new space. Yeah. Well, I, I think, think I'm going to build my own desk. Ooh. <laughs> a, a custom podcast desk. You should have the, uh, the microphone just like pops desk. out from the, <laughs> there's like a drawer or something. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Like in the Oscars, you know, and the mic comes up and down. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. That's what that's what I need. Well, and I'm using Speaking my favorite mounting uh, piece of tech to hold up the light. 
which let's all say together, the Pedco <laughs> Ultra, Ultra Clamp. clamp. <laughs> Ding. Because uh, generally I'm trying to keep this thing very low profile. So it's just holding onto a shelf. And then the whole thing can just... I, I, it sits behind the door, so I can just close the door and the thing stays inside the closet. It's like it's not even there. Yeah. Well, that's and exciting. then, So I've had that for a few weeks now. But that doing that project inspired me like well if i'm no longer setting up a tri or a, a a light stand the whole reason i don't want to set up a light stand is because then i can't close the closet door but i'm also setting up a tripod in the closet i mean i'm essentially putting all the stuff in the closet my i'm i'm shooting right next to my closet so rather than setting up a tripod in the closet and then having to tear that in and out uh, i've now figured out a way to mount the camera directly inside the closet mm-hmm. You're making, awesome. you're making the noise because you've seen this thing. <laughs> Although you're making a noise that it, it doesn't make. <laughs> but it should. Like, maybe we need to, like, get you uh, a little Raspberry Pi set up that detects when you start moving it and it plays a sound effect. <laughs> so right now I just have, like, a rail system, the kind of rail system that you would use to mount a matte box on your camera. But I'm using the rail system to let the camera slide in and out of the closet. It's just mounted to a wall inside the closet. In fact, here, I could probably push it in right now. Bye-bye, camera. Don't do it. We're recording. <laughs> Come you back, fool. camera. <laughs> but oh, my goodness. Did you recognize the rail system I used for this? I did not. This Should was I that. Have? Well, you've probably seen it before. This was actually a shoulder rig of mine that these days I'm just not using much anymore. This is the the reflex rig that I have. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I like this shoulder rig, but I've just kind of over the years stopped needing a shoulder rig. Uh, I, I mostly used it. We used it on Sriracha because uh, I didn't have in-body image stabilization back then. And also we did a lot of interviews and it was useful to have to do handheld interviews on a sh- shoulder rig. But. I don't remember that. I guess I do. I guess I do. But you always shot on the shoulder rig. I don't think I ever did. Yeah. Well, yeah. Was when we did interviews together, you would do them on a tripod, and then these are mostly just the interviews I did by myself. I would do the shoulder rig. Yep. But I like this system, this reflex rig system. I've had it for a few years. I like it because they created this like really simple clamp system that clamps onto the rails, and so I've able been able to use these clamps here. One of them, because each clamp has like a bunch of quarter-inch screw holes on it, which mm-hmm. in the past I've used to like mount various gear on there. But I just drilled some holes through the like shelf wall in my closet, and I've so I've screwed one of the clamps onto the wall, and then that clamp I'm leaving loose. I even like put some grease on there. And the other clamp is tight, so it's kind of like one clamp is holding the rails and it can slide into the other clamp. Smart. Yeah. It's what what you come up with when you have all this random gear laying around, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I'm mostly trying to use gear that I already had. The, the one thing I did have to buy is uh, I didn't want to be taking a ball head on and off the um, my tripod. So I got a new ball head. I bought like a $30 ball head from Barska, which I had never heard of that brand. I've never heard of that either. But it's relatively cheap, and it's one of these ball heads that has a, an Arca Swiss uh, or an Arca-style 
uh, quick release plate. That's the is, kind you use? It's the kind that I have on my my MiPhoto travel tripod. I see them a lot now. I guess it's a pretty small quick release system. It's just like a square. Uh, I, it seems to be, it seems that they're putting it on a lot of lightweight tripods these days. Got so it. that's my system. It's, it's brilliant. And now I'm going to send you your old camera back so you can leave it permanently mounted there, right? Yes, that's the final piece of this puzzle is, like when we started the podcast, I sent you my Panasonic GH3 thinking that that could be your podcast camera. But yep. then you went and got a <clears> better camera. Which it was camera. for a while. But then I bought the G85 because, I don't know, I spend too much money. And so now Nick just has this GH5 sitting in his house, and I realize I GH3. don't really need... Oh, sorry, yeah, GH3. I'm thinking I, I, I don't need GH5 my GH5, my which I'm shooting with right now, to do this podcast because we only shoot the podcast in 1080, and we're not yep. using any advanced features to do this. No super slow-mo? No. <laughs> don't you think maybe we should start shooting the podcast in slow-mo? Just for fun. Yeah, because everyone wants a 40-minute podcast to take even longer. <laughs> to one. Griffin, I have an idea. What is your idea? I want to add a new segment to the podcast. Ooh. We don't... Okay. We rarely have segments. I know. I want to add an ask griffin section so i know we do questions already right we do filmmaking questions but i feel like the people want to know more about griffin hammond so here's what i want to do people can tweet with the hashtag ask griffin i've got it set up where i will get all those tweets in a little spreadsheet and every episode i'm just going to pick a random question for griffin (laughs) and ask him on the podcast and it doesn't have to be about video production it can be like Hey, Griffin, what's your favorite Star Wars movie? And, you know, we'll just find out. It'll be quick, easy, nothing long. you got to fit it in a tweet, single tweet only. And uh, we'll see. We'll go from there. So, everybody, hashtag Ask Griffin. And, and that's uh, just, and I'll that's just one. one word, Ask Griffin. You got it. And I suppose people can continue to ask their normal filmmaking questions on email or YouTube comments or Twitter. Absolutely. Absolutely. But only the Ask Griffin hashtag questions that are on twitter nowhere else those are the ones those should be like those are the ones that i will pull in for this quick question for griffin hammond so griffin what is your favorite star wars movie go ahead i like empire strikes back i mean that's like the default everyone says that's the best one that's 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 a good answer and that's how it's gonna go ladies and gentlemen (laughs) that's how it's gonna go (laughs) well in just a moment we are going to answer non-personal questions about filmmaking including those about step-up rings when to use shotgun versus hypercardioid mics and if you're allowed to show the iPhone operating system in your film Haney Filmmakers is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a domain website or online store make it with Squarespace. Believe it or not we actually have a Squarespace related question this week (laughs) Perfect. This is a YouTube comment from Chris Dillon who says he also has a Squarespace site like mine and was curious how my site is able to redirect to my kit website. You know, I keep all my gear on kit.com. I'm actually, I had that site up right now. I was just, I went to griffinhammond.com slash gear and it took me right to your kit page. That's funny. I just did that. So he's confused because he knows that kit.com is an external site and he thought that redirects yep. could only do pages within his Squarespace site. So what is he missing? How'd you do it, Griffin? Well, How'd you break the system? You can link to any 
site you want to from Squarespace. And what I do is I use the URL mappings to create these, these redirects. So for example, I have uh, in the advanced settings on my site, there's a redirect for griffinhammond.com slash gear. I, I think I just write slash gear because it's on the griffinhammond.com domain and then mm -hmm. tell it to redirect to the kit page. I wonder if maybe what he's noticing is that on YouTube, you can only link to your domain, right? Maybe oh, you didn't know that. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, but it makes sense. Like you have a verified domain. You put some Google code in your header. It tells YouTube that's your domain. Uh, but the, the kind of hack here is because I can only link to Griffin Hammond things, if I want to link you to my list of gear, that's why I create this redirect. Because as far as YouTube is concerned, it's griffinhammond.com. It's on your site. Right, but then it goes... And that's, a, that's to pre pre prevent spam and things like that? I suppose, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, uh, you can do any of these these URL mappings. You can create all these redirects you want. I don't know if there's a, a limit to how many you can do, but that's one of the features I use. One of the Very cool. many Squarespace features that I use. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash griffin... I don't, I don't know why it's all about you, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thank you to Squarespace. Thank you, Squarespace. Our first question today is an email we got from Austin, who, I like this question. He wants to shoot a short film that involves the iPhone user interface. It's about texting, mm -hmm. things like that. And so he's thinking about using some sounds from the phone, maybe using Siri, uh, you know, he's obviously going to show the iPhone operating system. And he knows that a lot of films don't do that, that they will go and create their own UI, their own fake operating system, uh, so they can avoid showing Apple. And he's wondering, are yep. you allowed to show Apple stuff? You know, something interesting just popped up in the news that relates to this. Have you heard about this? <clears throat> Some apps were getting rejected because they were using Apple's emoji in their user interfaces. And Apple was oh. saying you can't do that because that's their copyright, even right. though it's like something built into their system. And they like specifically said like they didn't want screenshots of their emoji as part of you know your user interface. And I think Apple has since backtracked a little bit on this because people were kind of outraged and it was like, that's ridiculous. But it was apparently a legitimate use of copyright for them to say, no, you can't, you can't do that. But then they, they relented and said, okay, never mind, you can. But legally, I think Apple could probably say you can't use their, their operating system in a film. Right. Um, unless you've got a fair use argument, right? Well, yeah, all, you're right. All this stuff is copyrighted. In fact, Apple could probably go as far as... I'm sure the font, they've created a font, right? San Francisco, that's another one. Yeah, they. Yeah. Um, that's their copyrighted material. They could claim that yeah. every app that uses that font should be using something else, but that would be dumb. Of course, they want you to use the built-in font. So that right. I, I imagine that's where this emoji argument comes from. It's like, it's essentially the font that you've created for us to use. But as you point out, there is potentially a fair use argument. I mean... I, my instinct does say like you have to be careful this is their their intellectual property but if this was a documentary that i was making about apple i would of course have a pretty strong fair use argument to show their interface to say look sure. what apple has done look how it's changing communication in our world but 
I have to think that even if you're making a fiction film, you are still making a comment about, you could still be making a comment about Apple and, and communication right. and all of that. Just you're doing it in a fiction way. So I think as long as your film is saying something meaningful about Apple, then surely you can use some of their copyrighted material and have a, a good fair use argument. I think that makes sense. I think the way to look at this is one place you could really get yourself into trouble is if you are decidedly not making a comment about Apple. Like if you were just like, I need a voiceover for my film. Hey, Siri is a voice that I have access to. Let me just have Siri record or repeat back all these sentences I need. And then you just use that in like your trailer or something that has nothing to do with Apple. I think that would be crossing a line where you are now stealing their copyright material to make a co entirely different point and not even referencing the fact that it's Apple. I think that makes sense. But I always think with these kinds of things, the main thing is if you can avoid making people upset, then you're probably okay. Like, your life is probably easier. <laughs> if you do something that Apple's not going to get mad at you for, if they like that you're showing off their their phone, then who cares if it's copyright or not? They're not going to come after you. But if you are making like a really angry film that incites <laughs> more anger towards Apple, then they have a reason to try to make a copyright claim against you. All right, we've got a YouTube comment from Lee Carswell. Hey, guys, can you cover shotgun mics in a little more depth? I like the small Asden mic Griffin uses. It sounds great indoors and out, but I've also read that certain shotgun mics shouldn't be used indoors. Is the Asden good in both instances? I would prefer to find one mic I can use for both. So he's referring to the little Asden 250CX microphone that I've been using a lot recently. Yep. Yeah. I like it because it's really compact, sounds great, and yeah, it's a little shotgun mic. But it was funny because when I made the like side-by-side -side comparison video comparing it to the Rode NTG3, there were some comments on YouTube from professional sound people who were like, you should never use a shotgun mic indoors, that's the wrong mic. What's you know what the right mic then? I, I guess it's a hypercardioid mic is what... Okay. A lot of people will tell you you should use inside, and, and that some of that has to do and what, with... what type of uh, pickup pattern are your shotgun mics? I got to think that they are... Eh, I'm not good with pickup patterns. What are they? <laughs> they... Well, I'll tell you, Griffin, because I know they are super cardioid. So what's the difference between a super cardioid and a hypercardioid? I don't know. You should tell me. Uh, uh, so a super cardioid mic, which is a pretty common pickup pattern, basically picks up very well in the front... Um, and rejects the sides and then actually just because of the way the physics work it actually picks up from the back a little bit a hypercardioid is an even more focused version of that so it's an even narrower um, oh. pickup pattern in the front uh, and and it actually will pick up even more in the back um, and reject more from the sides I think the concern with a supercardioid mic indoors is room reflection right yeah so you're gonna get a lot of sound bouncing off walls and a hypercardioid is gonna reject more of that room noise than a supercardioid will so yeah I think if you want to be perfect with your audio if you want to be a uh, a boom mic operator and you, you probably should be using the right kind of mic for the right setting but in my experience I feel like the audience can't really tell the difference between those kind of mics and I've been plenty happy with the audio quality I get from a shotgun mic 
I like that it it is getting me good audio indoors and out. I suppose I could get slightly better uh, audio, you know, with less reverb inside, but I haven't noticed that problem. I've been using a shotgun mic indoors for for years and been happy with it. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. Um, going to hypercardioid too, you know, especially if you're like a one man band like you are, like you have to be a little more careful with a hypercardioid because you could actually, you know, you could have a source that is outside of the pickup area, right? So yeah. as you get to these more specialized mics, you almost need, you know, um, dedicated sound people who are making sure, you know, monitoring audio all the time and making sure you're getting good pickup. So that's something to watch out for too. Yeah. Our next question is a YouTube comment from Matter Graphica. I'm thinking of getting a Panasonic Lumix LX10. It's a compact camera, kind of like the Sony RX100. I want to hear your thoughts about compact cameras because you've mentioned you love to travel light. I do. These cameras practically fit in your pocket. It does 4K video and has in-body image stabilization. Would you buy one? Would you buy one, Nick? Uh, you know, I looked at the camera. I think it's a it's a very nice looking camera. Um, the only thing, you know, if, if I'm only going to carry one camera, I probably want interchangeable lenses just because I think the the increase in bulk is worth the flexibility of having a couple lenses with me. But I mean, if you are constantly going to be shooting on a lens similar to the one this has on it and just, you know, never changing it, I think it'd be a great option. I mean, what, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think I imagine when you're looking at a camera, you went with the, what is it, the G85, right? G85, right there. I, one of the big reasons I would think you'd go with the G85 is because you already have a bunch of Panasonic glass. You I have do. those lenses. I have, a ton of, I have a ton of lenses, yep. And every time I'm at trade shows and I see the LX10 little compact camera, I think, that is so cool. I want something like that. But I know myself, I know that I love the lenses I have. And as much as it would be cool to carry around something that small, I just think like, but I'm going to want to shoot with my 42.5 millimeter or something. Uh so I think if I were to get a compact camera, I would get one of the ones that lets me put on interchangeable lenses, which Panasonic has some of those. But one thing that really impresses me about this thing is I would have expected a compact camera with a built-in zoom lens probably wouldn't have a very good f-stop, like aperture. Mm-hmm. But this this camera is a 24 to 70 millimeter equivalent. Uh, they're, they're talking about super 35 sensor size so it's actually yep. like the 12 to 35 millimeter lens and it's an f14 at the wide part wide f24 what was that so it's fast yeah real fast uh so that's what impressed me i guess it's not like it's not there are ones that have more zoom than that this isn't going to get you you're not gonna be able to zoom in in at a recital and get the close-up of your daughter performing on stage uh it's, it's more of an interview kind of focal length but uh it sounds like it'll do really well in low light so it sounds like a great it might camera be a good me. b camera don't you think something you can just stick on a you know on a clamp or something and get a wide shot an extra wide shot or something like oh that. yeah well yeah i mean if, if what you're doing is documentary like you could probably shoot a documentary on this camera and you could definitely shoot interviews with it, it sounds like a great it'd be great for that kind of situation and it'd be a good like travel camera Yep. We got an email from Brendan who says, I'm considering buying a gimbal like the Crane, and I'm curious what focal distances work best. I suspect zooms over 35 to 100 don't work so well, but what if they have built-in optical image stabilization? 
similar question what's the purpose of OIS in a longer lens like a 35 to 100 can you go handheld at the longer end of those ranges so let me answer the second question first uh, I do have the 35 to 100 millimeter lens and yes the the in-body image stabilization and the optical image stabilization on the lens itself do make a difference with that because you can go handheld at 100 millimeters it's gonna be kind of like waving around a little bit but the difference between the stabilized version is just it's kind of wavy there's you're not going to be able to make it still but it's kind of it kind of glides around but when you turn off the in-body image stabilization or the on camera on lens stabilization it's just like completely shaky, shaky. and unusable <laughs> yep so i mean it's not the it's not the best way to shoot all the way zoomed in at 100 but it's usable and i've definitely picked up shots like that yeah i've had to do it you know when you have to hop off a tripod real quick to get a, a close-up you know, say you're trying to get somebody stands in your way doing a wedding and pop off the tripod really fast and move to get a shot. And you kind of have to become your own tripod when you're zoomed in that much. And, yeah. you know, I get my arms really close to my chest and, you know, you can get a usable 10 second clip or so, but I don't think it's a shot you'd want to have to linger on for very long. Right. But it's good that it's there. And yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I shot a lot of the, the bear stuff that way in Alaska. I was using the 35 to 100. And what and about when you're on a gimbal? You ever uh, shoot it on a gimbal with a real tight lens like that? I have never put the 35 to 100 on a gimbal, and I'm not sure if I would. No, I think for me, those gimbal shots are great for more of a, a wide point of view shot. So, uh, you know, I always use my 14 millimeter or my 20 millimeter when I was on my glide cam, which I think is pretty similar to, to shooting on a gimbal. I think that just kind of looks better. Well, yeah, because the wider your lens the more it exaggerates distance. And the tighter your lens, the more it compresses distance. And the whole fun of a gimbal is that as it moves through space, it feels so cinematic because you're seeing all of that movement. And if you're yep. zoomed way in on something in the distance, I mean, you might be able to use a gimbal as a slider kind of shot on a tight lens. But if you're just moving straight forward through space, you'll barely notice that it, you're even moving on a tight lens. Right, because it's, it's compressed all that distance. But when you put like a, I mean, we used to do gimbal shots with a 14 millimeter on Panasonic cameras, and that always felt like a really yep. good focal length. Yep. So I think a gimbal is less about just being an alternate stabilization device, like a tripod, and more about, like you said, being able to move through a space and, and give that point of view, which I think is always going to work better with a wider lens. Well, it is funny that it brings that up, because like now with electronic gimbals, I guess I could see you using an electronic gimbal to stabilize a long lens like that for those kind of shots at like a wedding. Whereas the traditional like glide cam style weighted gimbals, I could never imagine using it that way because those you don't have as much control over where the camera is pointed exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's more, it's much more of an art than a science, right? You're like, well, right. let's see if this works. Here we go. And you kind of got to roll with what it does. Yeah. But the, he makes and a good point. You may be, maybe nowadays again, Griffin. The battery on your on your camera just died? On my camera. This was a fresh one. Like, I just took it off the charger. Oh, man. Well, yet another uh, problem with my recording, Griffin. I cannot get this right. <laughs> People love it when, when things go wrong. So, <clears throat> when I bought my G85, I also bought a second battery. And it was a non-Panasonic 
brand battery. This battery was fully charged when we began uh, the podcast, and uh, it did not survive the whole time. It is a Watson brand uh, battery, and uh, it's a piece of junk. I do not recommend it. <laughs> so we're not going to be using that one anymore. Although I bet you we're saved a just... lot of money, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but if it doesn't work, <laughs> who cares? How much is a real battery from B&H? Let's find out. G85 battery. Ah, they want $50 for the Panasonic brand one, and here it is, $25 for this Watson brand one, which is a piece of junk, and you should not buy. Half so, price and less than half the, half the battery capability. Life. Oh my gosh, that's frustrating. So, I apologize, I don't remember what we were talking about. Well, I think it's, it's time for us to go into our next question. All right, very good. But I'm just, I'm just glad that you've grown as a, as a shooter. You've learned something today. I've learned not to trust cheap third-party batteries, <laughs> which is probably a lesson I've learned, you know, 20 times over my career, but yet right. I still <laughs> I keep doing it. Here's a Twitter question that we got from Svante Svarnstrom, who got a Lumix GX8 and is looking for a variable ND filter for his 20 millimeter lens, his 42.5 millimeter lens, and his future 12 to 35 millimeter lens. So one filter and a bunch of step-up rings. They're telling me at the local shop that the variable ones may introduce weird lines to the image. Yeah, that's something we've talked about before, right? At the extreme ends of those variable ND filters, you can get that X pattern uh, uh, on your screen. It's just like kind of a gray vignette looking X, um, but it's usually only at the extreme and you've switched to non-variable ND filters, I believe, mainly for yes. that reason. Yeah, that's part of it, just knowing that I may not always notice if I've gone too far on a variable ND and introduced some of that, that artifact. Uh, mm -hmm. But also, I guess in my mind, too, I just thought, why have two pieces of glass in front of my lens uh, You know, that are circling around on each other? That's what a variable ND is. Or could I just have one piece of glass if I know I... I kind of know what what degrees of ND I need. I've kind of figured out exactly which ones I need. So right now, right now I'm using actually I have a few different ones right now. Right now I have a I have a 10 wait. Yeah, 10 stop is a 1000x darker. I have a 10 stop that I use for for time, time lapses. Lapse. I have been putting a 3 stop on my podcast camera all these episodes and I now that I'm dedicating a camera to the closet I decided I would buy a dedicated ND filter for it and it always felt like it was just a little bit too dark for me so I've gone with a two-stop ND I just picked up a two-stop ND for that and, and while I was at it I just ordered so a in your face what was that and then you won't have to blast the lights so bright although maybe your new ones are not adjustable like your flex lights no, they are adjustable, although I do think that oh, they're good. maybe not quite as bright, so that was one of the reasons I went with a slightly less ND stop. filter. And then I also just ordered a six-stop ND, which I, I've i wanted on several projects. For the most part, a three-stop is okay for most of my outdoor shooting, but then when I go to these really bright places like on top of a mountain or like in the desert, it always seems like I need six stops. You wish you had just a little more so you could keep that aperture nice yeah. and open. Yeah. 
And I can always stack, uh, like I have two three-stop ND filters. I can stack them on top of each other and make six stops. Mm. But uh, just like... And you, you use step-up rings as well, right? You just kind of buy them for your biggest lens and... Yeah. So I used to have a 77 millimeter, like diameter millimeter lens. And so I have some 77 millimeter ND filters. Those are really big, right? They are very big, but that means they could fit on everything I have now. Yeah. So I just got a bunch of step up rings to get me from, you know, some of my lenses are 62. I have 67. My 12 to 35 is a 58 millimeter. So I have step up rings to get me from all of those different distances. In his case, the smallest one is going to be that 20 millimeter. That's going to be a really small, I don't know what that one is. Hmm. He's going to need a really, a really big step up adapter to get from 20, that 20 millimeter has like a really tiny opening. So what what do you think though? Should he get a variable one or should he not? I think you'll be fine without a variable one. I mean, a variable one is a nice way to start with ND filters and get a sense of when you use them and when you don't. But I think mm-hmm. if you just picked up like a three-stop ND filter, that might do a lot of the work for you. Yep. Unless you're always shooting in like super bright sunlight, then maybe even more. Also depends on what aperture you want to be shooting at. If you always want to be shooting on your 42.5 millimeter at f1.2 out in bright sunlight, you, more. you might need yeah. more, yeah. We got an email from Reed. He says, can you explain base and native ISO? Correct me if I'm wrong. When shooting base ISO, you get the least noise and highest dynamic range in your image. If that's right, is there a formula to know how much dynamic range is lost and noise introduced when shooting high or low ISOs? My understanding of, of shooting at native ISO is the same as Reed's, that if I can, I want to shoot at the native ISO on my camera. My On my camera, it's 400, ISO 400. Yep. And if I shoot at ISO 400, then, I mean, it's a nice low ISO, so it should, shouldn't have too much noise in the, in the shadows, uh, really any noticeable noise. And I should maximize the dynamic range that the camera is capable of. But he brings up a good point. Knowing that, I'm not always going to shoot at ISO 400. Sometimes I need to, to bump it up, and I shouldn't yep. be afraid to do it. But if I do bump it up, how much dynamic range am I going to lose? Yeah, not, exactly. I don't know that. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a way to know that unless you're, uh, you know, one of the people making the the sensor for the camera. They probably right. have a pretty good idea. I always think of it in my head, and I'm not sure if this is a good analogy, but it's like, you know, a gain system, like on a audio. You know, you turn up the gain, um, which is going to limit uh, the dynamic range a little bit, um, just based on the fact that you're pushing those those levels up. But uh, I'm not quite sure if that's accurate or not right. in, in the video world. Well, like you said, I'm sure there is a formula that the camera manufacturers know. Uh, I'm sure they could tell you, but uh, I do not know what that is. I could speculate, though. I would bet that if I change the ISO by a full stop, like if I go from ISO 400 up to ISO 800, I would think that I might lose a stop of dynamic range because now I'm just shoving the whole the whole gain up a stop, and I'm going to lose some of the, what the, you know the top range. So it sounds uh, it's that sounds reasonable. I don't know if it's true or not, but yeah. So if I'm starting with twelve stops of dynamic range on the GH5, and I bump up to ISO 400, maybe I'm shooting at eleven stops dynamic dynamic range. I don't know. I don't know either. I know I've never really worried about dynamic range when I'm changing my ISO. Noise definitely is is a bigger concern. So that's usually what I'm trying to 
uh, mitigate is how much noise I'm introducing. Yeah. Well, and like a lot of camera stuff, I'll say that if your audience had the opportunity to see a side-by-side test of the, you know, if they could see the scene you're shooting in 12 stops at dynamic range and then also see it in 11 stops at dynamic range, maybe they would notice the difference. But you're, you're never going to give your audience that opportunity. So go ahead and shoot at ISO 800 if that's what you need. Go ahead and shoot at ISO 3200 if that's what you need. And you may know that you've lost a little bit of dynamic range, but if that's what you need to get the exposure right, the people watching your story are never going to know that they're missing out on something. So I wouldn't be too right. freaked out about that stuff. Our final question today is an email from Nick who has recently learned that his grandfather was diagnosed with bone cancer. And he'd like to use this opportunity to take a look at his grandfather's life in a really optimistic way. It's been full of adventure and traveling, and he loves to tell stories. So he's thinking that he may want to shoot a biographical documentary about his grandfather with him on camera telling some of his stories. And he points out that in 2011, his grandfather wrote a 39-page autobiography uh, when he had another run-in with cancer. And so he's thinking he may be able to draw some information from that and, and shoot a piece about him. So he's just wondering if you're going to go about shooting a piece like this rather than a, I guess, a, a, another kind of documentary. This is very person-focused. Uh, what kinds of things would you get for B-roll? Yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of nice he's got a, a little bit of a script to work off of, at least to get him going. But uh, yeah. when doing something like this, you know, I'd expect a lot of old photographs or you know if there's old video or film that he can pull in anything um that uh, you know will kind of add to the story being told in the interview i think would be good um i bet you have other ideas what what kind of stuff do you do when you have a kind of an interview heavy piece right well this is a challenge that i run into sometimes in an ideal world i always want my characters out in the world doing something very active you know you get your interview with them but then Hopefully, if they're a photographer, you're seeing them out in the world shooting. Uh, but there are some pieces, like maybe this one, where your subject, you know, sometimes I may only have an hour with a subject. It's like, well, we're going to shoot everything inside your home. Uh, maybe you can't leave. Maybe there's nothing going on for you to go do. So then I have to get, be creative with how am I going to fill that time with interesting shots. So for one, shoot the interviews with two cameras if you can, because now you have something to cut to that's not B-roll. If you, if you run out of B-roll. But then I try to get cutaways of, like, hands while someone is talking. I mean, after the interview, I can, if they, you know, someone showed me a tattoo on their arm, let me get a cutaway of that tattoo, and then I have that. Or I would like to get this person, not only should I get some shots of the photos in their photo album, but let me get their hands moving through the photo album and showing me. Uh, so I would just think about how can you have this person move through their own environment and get lots of shots of that and maybe shoot it in slow motion too <laughs> to take up a little more time well have we done it again <laughs> we've done it again <laughs> do you think we have audio well i'm recording your audio so <laughs> i think i'm recording my <laughs> so own hopefully audio. We did my battery die yes it did <laughs> but we're just not going to use this one anymore you know that one's done. I, mean, I guess I'm going to have to order another uh, Panasonic brand one. Hey, speaking of uh, using Audio Hijack to capture audio, 
I was playing around with it because I have this idea in two weeks from, from now, I'm going to be in Illinois, in central Illinois, when it's time for yep. us to record the podcast. And I'm kind of curious if anyone would be interested in doing this. Uh, I'm wondering if we should do like a live recording, not not really live for the internet, but like an in like an a live audience, live in front of a studio audience. Yeah, that way we so, don't need to put a laugh track in. Yeah, <laughs> normally we do. Never mind. <laughs> You're like that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but I was playing around with audio hijack because I was wondering if there's a way for me to like route your audio into my ear but also route it to some speakers so the audience can hear you and i think i figured it out where you'll be able to hear them asking questions and they'll be able to hear you talking to me i'll be live in person you'll be in vegas does that sound like something fun to do that sounds like fun let's do it so do you do we know enough people to fill a room that's what I'm wondering. That's in, what I want to find out. If anyone lives in the vicinity of Bloomington Normal, Illinois, Bloomington Normal is right in the middle of Illinois. If you live in central Illinois or if you would be willing to drive all the way from Chicago or Indianapolis or something like that, uh, just let me I know. Email me at I Griffin that far. at hey.film. <laughs> Nick would not drive that far. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd love to know. Or if you are a student at Illinois State University, uh, let me know if there's any interest in that. And I, I think we, we could probably set that up. That would be fun. Yeah. Maybe we would do that on, like, Sunday. Let's see. What day would this be? This would probably be Sunday, March 4th. Or maybe Monday. But I got to think that people would be more likely to show up on a Sunday. Yeah. When they don't have work and other obligations. Yeah. So, yeah. Just let and me know if that's something you would, you would hashtag come Hashtag Ask Griffin. Hashtag oh, yeah. Ask Griffin. <laughs> Let's get some Griffin Hammond. Let's get deep into Griffin Hammond. Let's learn okay. about him together. <laughs> well, that's all I got for this week. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you later. Bye. It's this, like, this time I really did. Oh, my God, are you kidding me? It's the third party battery. It's just, it's not mm. living up to the, the first party one. The first party battery. <laughs> Well, can't trust that battery anymore. <laughs> I'm still at three out of three battery bars.